kind of feel like giving a little a little pre-sermon word here. I just uh, I sense um, I know I know personally myself, and maybe some other people know what I'm talking about. Um, you ever just like kind of go through a season in life where it seems like the hits just keep on coming? You know what I mean? From every direction, and you're wondering when it's going to let up. And uh, you know, it just just with me and Andre here in the past few weeks, it's just like bad news after bad set of circumstances after financial hit after that. I mean, just and one right after another. And I woke up this morning and something else bad had happened. And 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 I I just about started working on a good mad. You know what I'm talking about? I just about started working on a good mad, and I had to sit down for a minute and start praying and get it together. And then I said, you know what? We're going to praise the Lord in these circumstances as well. Let me tell you something. There's nothing you're going through right now that is as bad as it could be. And the Lord is with you right in the middle of it. You agree with that this morning? Amen. Probably what you're aggravated and frustrated about is not that big of a deal at all. And it'd be good if you could just let it go. And I believe this morning the Lord was just saying to me, there's a, there's a very important passage of Scripture in James. It's a good one to memorize. He said, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials and temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let that perseverance and patience have its perfect work in you so that you can be complete and entire, lacking nothing. We was talking about it this morning with some guys. When bad things happen, you might as well just run back and say, Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord, for this trial. We wouldn't make it without these trials. Amen. So I want to pray into that this morning. Can anybody relate to just the hits keep on coming, seems like, here lately? You know what? Let's just embrace that and say, can we just say thank you, God? Can we say thank you? Lord, I appreciate these trials that you're allowing into my life because you're developing my faith and you're going to work it all for good and somehow I know that these things are going to come into alignment for the good because you're refining my character you're putting my heart in the right place, and if I can't get through these little things, how can I get through big things? You know that song, it just pressed it in a little bit deeper. The Lord drove it home a little bit harder when Shauna was up here singing it as well. Because I, I, I know the history of that song, and I've studied the history of that song, and a, and a guy named Horatio Spafford wrote that song after he had lost his business in a fire in Chicago. His family, and I think he had like four or five daughters, I can't remember, but they, they went over to, uh, across to Europe on a boat before he did. And the boat sank, and the only one that lived through it was his, was his wife. And his wife sent him a telegram that said, we've lost all of our children, and I'm over here alone. And as he's coming over to Europe after he lost all of his children, lost all of his business in a fire, went bankrupt, he's coming over, and he writes that song, It Is Well With My Soul. And I guarantee you none of you have been through that just yet. And, but, but to be able to respond with It Is Well With My Soul in those circumstances. So we need to take that song to heart this morning. Amen. It's well with our soul. I know you've got some challenges. I've got challenges. We've got a lot, of, a lot of trials and decisions that need to be made, but God will give us wisdom. He'll lead us through that. Can we just pray into that this morning as a, as a church? Let's just take a moment. Let's pray together before we get into the Word. Father, this morning we come to you. We come to you with a lot of burdens, but your Word says to cast your burden upon the Lord, to cast all of our cares upon you, Lord, because you care for us. And Lord, there is nothing that we're going through that ultimately is not a light affliction. Your word says that no temptation has taken us but such as is common to man. But God, you are faithful, who with every temptation and every trial will make a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for the way of escape. We thank you, Lord, that even in trials, you're refining us, you're purifying our hearts. And God, at the end of the day, we get to come back to you and give you worship and praise, knowing that you're working all things together for our good. And Lord, I just pray that that in each circumstance right now, God, there'd be an overwhelming peace that guards our hearts and our minds and everything that we're going through. The holiday season sometimes, Lord, can be difficult. They can be challenging. They can be busy and stressful. But God, this is the time that we want to set our hearts on you. We want our hearts to be set on you at all times. But God, this time, even more in in the busyness, in the holidays, during all these times, Jesus, let our focus be on you And we trust that you're going to lead us, you're going to guide us into all truth, and you're going to bring freedom in these areas of our lives. And we thank you for the wisdom to move forward in peace, knowing that you're going to bring bring about a miracle for us, God, and we're going to be able to say that you're faithful. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. You say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Well, we're in December. My buddy Brennan said it was a little bit too early to be putting green and red lights up. It just wasn't quite that time yet. But hey, man, I mean, my wife, she's ready to put the Christmas tree up in October. You know what I'm talking about? Like after Halloween. After Halloween, put that sucker up. You know, we're just, let's start thinking about baby Jesus. Nothing says baby Jesus like a Christmas tree. I don't know where that comes into, into play, but, but there's, there's something, something there. I don't know. So, so I'm, I'm going to preach uh, probably, this, this is going to be a, a four-week series here in this Advent season as we start to think about the, coming, the first coming of Jesus as a little baby in a manger. And I want to speak specifically about Christ's family tree. And we've all got family trees. We get in the holidays like you even find out sometimes, you know, like how many of y'all you got some weird family members that you get to hang out with during the holiday? And you only get to see them, you know, ever so often, but you get to see them and you find out, man, how, how am I related to this person? I don't know how this works out. Like we, got, we, we carry the same DNA and, and that's interesting. But see, uh, in, in some regard, Jesus carried the DNA of some, of, of some, some weird folks if you look back into it. And God is going to try to tell us something through this, I believe, and, and through his family tree. So let's turn to the book of Matthew. I'm going to read several verses. I'm going to read a genealogy, the, the chapter, the first part of it that you usually skip when you read the Christmas story in Matthew. Uh, it's also in Luke. You know, in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus' genealogy, it goes back to Abraham because the book of Matthew is, is teaching us that Jesus is the king of the Jews, and so it goes back to Abraham. In the book of Luke... Luke is teaching us that Jesus is the Son of Man, and therefore his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. There are some slight differences in Jesus' genealogy, and some people would say, well, you see, this is where the Bible has error. Now, there's reasons why there is differences in those genealogy, because it is the same exact line. They make some changes, but they're making changes because, because the Holy Spirit is trying to highlight something specific in each genealogy. Now, in Matthew's genealogy, as you read through it, there's going to be some weird things that we read, and it begs the question, like, why in the world is Matthew, why in the world is the Holy Spirit using Matthew to say some of these things? We've got to figure out what he's trying to say. So let's, let's read some of this. I, I might read all of it, but some of these names, you know, we'll just uh, read through it and see what happens. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now here's what you got to start noticing. 
is that most every genealogy, especially in those times, they were very important. Where you came from was important. They cared about that type of a thing. It was a big thing. I mean, their goal was to populate, populate the earth with their people because they were creating nations back then. Nowadays, you never think of the fact, I'm Clay Bishop, I never think of the fact, you know what, if I keep having enough kids, maybe one day I'm going to have a nation. We're going to call that nation Bishop. Like Nobody's thinking that. We don't think that way anymore. They used to think that way. That's why kids and family was very important to them. Their lineage, the children they were going to have, was essential to what was going to happen in the earth because having children was having power in those days. But see, you never put women in genealogies. And all of a sudden, Matthew just throws a woman in there, says, yeah, and by the way, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, we know that Jesus, what he is, the line of the tribe of... Judah. Y'all know that. He's a, so Judah, right here's where he comes from. He comes from the line of Judah, but it says specifically that Judah got, begot his family line through a woman named Tamar. We need to look at that. We need to pay attention to that. Then it goes on a little bit further, and it says, And Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Now let me ask you something. Is it, is it Salmon or is it Salmon? How many, how many vote Salmon? Salmon. How many, say, how many say salmon? All right, see, I used to say salmon all the time, and if it turns out everybody said salmon. I don't know. That's neither here nor there. Let me get back on track. I just wanted to know. I just needed to know. And it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Notice that, by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, another woman. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon Notice this, it doesn't even name her name. By her who had been the wife of Uriah. So we have four women, and then you get to the end of the... Now, there, there's four women already, and you get to the end of the lineage, and it says, let's, let's get down to 16, and Jacob, uh, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Okay, so you've got five women in Jesus' genealogy. And that's a very unique set of circumstances to begin with. But the Holy Spirit, like I said, is trying to highlight something very specifically here. Now, i got to be honest with you. To me, it, it is, it is mind-blowing whenever I just begin to think that the God of the universe, who created all things, from whom are all things, who stoke, spoke the stars and the galaxies and the earth, and you and I, and created our eyeballs and the hearts and the lungs that are in our and made all of those things that he decided to take on human form and for a very brief time he was a baby like the babies that we hold in our arms that are fragile. You imagine that? I mean, that, that in itself is, is, is mind-blowing and it goes beyond what we can even comprehend. But see, the Christmas story, what we're getting ready to talk about, when you talk about Christmas, it really has little to do with what we've made it, or a, a commercialized kind of an event where we buy gifts and this and that. Those things are all good, I believe, and it's good to be with family and trade gifts and all that. But at the end of the day, what the Christmas story is all about is that the, God, the holy God of the universe decides not to say, well, I'm too holy, I can't enter into your mess. Instead, rather, he says, I'm so holy that I love you so much that I'm choosing to enter into your mess. I'm choosing to enter into your brokenness. I'm choosing to enter into your pain, and I will take on flesh, and I will enter into the mess of this world that you all are in because my goal and my desire is to redeem you out of this brokenness and this pain that you're suffering, that you're living in. That's the Christmas story that God... Who is holy. See, because we've always been taught that God is so holy, He can't even look at sin. 
But see, the truth is, is that God, he is, he is holy, but He's so holy that out of that holiness there is a love that He desires to redeem us out of sin. And in order to redeem humanity out of sin, He had to become human in order to do it. See, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of our pain, we don't have a God who is far. I know when it's hard, it feels like he's afar off. I know that when you're in your sin, the condemnation and the guilt and the, and, the, and the uncleanliness makes it feel like God is miles away. But we have a God who is called Emmanuel. That means God with us. He is God with you in the pain. He's God with you in the sin. He's God with you in the struggle. And ultimately, he is the God who has come to save you and redeem you out of that. Amen. So that's what the Christmas story is all about, and that's what we begin to realize. And see, here's the thing. You would think that the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah of the world, would come from a flawless royal line, wouldn't you? You'd think, man, in order for him to be the Messiah, we'd have to be able to look back at his genealogy and see how, how perfect everything was in order to come to this perfect man. But see, Matthew's trying to point out the opposite. He is trying to point out that really Jesus' genealogy, he got here and he came through a mess to get here. Amen. Now that's, and that's just what it is. So this morning we can embrace the mess a little bit. But let's go to the first woman. Let's talk about the first woman. And I've got to go ahead and give you a little, a little uh, disclaimer here in the beginning. The story I'm about to read you, if they made it into a movie, would be rated R without question. Are y'all ready for it this morning? I'm just going to read Bible. I'm not even going to say anything. So number one in your notes is, is Tamar. This is the first woman. We know in Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 verse 3 it said, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is going to teach us a little bit about Jesus and who he is. But Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And this, this is actually a difficult story to tell. When I read this story, when I, when I go in and I'm reading the Bible story, sometimes I'm like, you know what? I, I, want, I, want to, I want this to come to life in my mind, so I imagine it. I imagine what the people look like. I imagine the scene. I imagine exactly. And when I read this story, I had some things in my imagination that really were a little bit, like I said, they were rated R. I almost thought, Lord, how could you want that in my mind? This is pretty sketchy. This is a serious story. But see, when, as I'm reading this story, I'm thinking to myself, why in the world would Matthew you include this specifically like, like if it was us we would try to cover it up and hide the fact that Tamar was ultimately a, a, a great, great 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 grandmother of Jesus Christ we would try to hide it because when you read this story what you feel is, is, is almost like you blush there's a shame involved there's a guilt involved there's this like oh man that's just dirty involved when you read it and it pointed out to me that God was saying specifically you know all that shame all that guilt all that filthiness that you felt from the mistakes that you've made those are the very people that Jesus has come to redeem. And Matthew is trying to point that out. He's trying to point out that it's not about our perfection. It's about his perfection. That he's able to come in his perfection, enter into our mess, and bring redemption. You say, well, Clay, that, that story cannot be this, that bad. See, Tamar is a woman who acts out of desperation because her hopes have been shattered. Have you ever had hopes for something to happen and then it didn't happen so you took desperate measures and did something crazy that when you look back on it you're like, my Lord, I acted out of desperation. I should not have done that. Anybody? Her hopes were shattered. Everything was going wrong for her. Life was, was, was going wrong. But here's, here's what you got to understand. In Genesis 38... If you read the book of Genesis, you're reading about the story of Joseph, and all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, it just, it just, it just breaks. And you read something totally different. It just switches over to another story out of nowhere. 
And in Genesis 38, it, it, it chooses to include this story about, uh, about Tamar and Judah. And Judah, he had three sons, and his three sons were named Er, Onan, and Shelah. Really good names if you happen to have triplets. Uh, uh, but, but he had these three sons, and, and here's what it says in Genesis 38, verse 6 through 11. Let's just read through this really quick. Genesis 38, verse 6 through 11. It says, Then Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and his name was Tamar. So he's got three sons. He takes his firstborn, gets him a wife named Tamar. Next verse. It says, But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. See, look at that. I knew, I knew I'd get a little something out of that. Here, you know, I'm, let, me, let me just throw a little something in here. I didn't really mean to hit this. But you know, so many people say, well, you know, man, God just seems to be so harsh in the Old Testament. You know what's more harsh than what God seems to be in the Old Testament? is how proud human beings are in rebelling against the all-holy, all-knowing, creative God in the Old Testament. When God kills, it's a righteous thing. I know that's hard, difficult for many of us to understand. What we do know at the end of the day is that God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. So sometimes when we look back at situations in the Old Testament, we don't fully understand what in the world's going on. But here's what I need you to understand is that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And anybody who would teach anything different, it's heresy. It's not true. Jesus respected the Old Testament. He understood it. Maybe you don't understand everything that you read in the Old Testament, but God is revealing His holiness, and He's working through a covenant that is not based on His grace, even though He offers grace all the time. He offers compassion all the time. But see, when people act very wickedly, guess what? God has the right to do what He wants to with them because He is judge of all the earth. But now we are in a different covenant where He doesn't just deal with us based on our works because, listen, if He dealt with all of us based on on our works, do you realize that every one of us would be deserving of death and judgment? Every single one of us. The gift is that even though all of us have rebelled against the holy God, there's no good in us at all. God says, I love you so much, I don't want you to experience death and judgment. I want you to experience salvation and eternal life with me. That's why salvation in Jesus Christ is so beautiful because they saw that they could never measure up to the holiness that God was and God had to demonstrate that to them because in man's pride, man's thinking, well, we can figure this out. We can do this. God, just tell us what to do. We'll figure it out. See, that's why we need a Savior, and that's why we need to understand. So he was wicked, and, and the Lord killed him. Next verse. He said, And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. Next verse. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went to end to his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. I don't think I need to give any commentary on that. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. And then the next verse, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So here's the situation. Tamar marries one of Judah's sons, but he dies. Okay, so she lost her husband. The law said that the brother of the, of, the, of the man who died should go into his brother's wife and raise up a lineage because that was important. We don't understand that, but for them it was important to have children. It was the most important thing in the world for a woman to have children. And even in our world today, women can relate. I mean, we experience the pain of when women are, 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 experience infertility and how bad it hurts. But you cannot imagine. It's exponential there because if you don't have children, you don't have a life back then. Nowadays, you still have a life. It's not that big of a deal. But, but then it was so important. He was supposed to go in to raise up children by law 
but he chooses not to, and the Lord's displeased with it. So now Judah is scared, so he's like, you know what, Tamar, just go over there and, and go, go and be a widow in, 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 your father, in, in your father's house because I don't know if I want my son to die or not. And I'm afraid if he marries you that he might, he might die. So here's what you've got. You've got her suffering all kinds of difficulty because her husband died, the guy who's supposed to give her children dies, and now her, her father-in-law has abandoned her and will not fulfill what he is supposed to fulfill by giving the third son to her as a husband. So she, she takes matters into her own hands. Time passes, and if you read this story, time passes... And as, as time goes by, she realizes, you know what, Judah lied to me. He is not going to give me his third son, Shelah, so I know what I'm going to do. Now, if you read this story, it is sketchy, y'all. She, 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 she finds out that Judah is going up to a place called Timnah. And as Judah is going up to this place, she decides, I'm going to act like a prostitute. She puts a veil over her face. And because that's what the prostitutes did back then. And she sits by this place as he passes by. And when he sees her, he says to her, hey, let's, let's, let's get together. And she says, well, that's fine with me. What are you going to give me if we get together? She's acting like a prostitute. And he says, well, you know what I'm going to do? He said, I'll give you a goat, but I don't have it right now. She said, well, in that case, give me your signet ring, give me your staff, and give me your cord. These were all things that would signify exactly who his is. It had his sign on his ring. It had his sign on his staff. It had his sign on the cord. And he said, here, I'll give it to you. And then when we get done, I'll go get the goat, and I'll bring it back to you. And it says he went into her, and she conceived, and she was pregnant. Amen. Y'all with me so far? You're like, oh, this is the sketchiest Sunday I've ever been to church in. But the reason I'm telling this story is to make a point of who Jesus is, right? So three months later, they find out Tamar's pregnant. They go to Judah. They say, Judah, your, your daughter-in-law, man, she went and got pregnant somehow outside of wedlock because he didn't know it was her that he was with. He said, she went and got pregnant somehow outside of wedlock. You know what Judah said? He said, bring her out, let's burn her. Bring her out, let's burn her. She said, all right, I'm coming out, I'm coming out. It's all good. Yeah, I'm pregnant. I got a baby. And, they said, and, 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 and she says, but, but here's the thing. She said, before you burn me, once y'all find out whose signet ring this is, whose cord this is, and whose staff this is, because this is the man by whom I'm pregnant. Judah looked at it and said, he, put, he pulled one of them. He said, that's mine. He said, that's mine. So he said, all right, all right, hold off. It's all good. This is, this is my child. Why in the world would she do that? I mean, do y'all get the same feelings that I get as you even think about this story? It's like, man, this is, this is like a Dr. Phil episode or something. Like, this is some heavy stuff. There's filthiness. There's lust. There's prostitution. There's sexual immorality. There's lies. There's deception. I mean, it is the craziest stuff. It's better than a soap opera right here in the scripture. And this is the first woman that is named in Jesus' lineage and I'm thinking Matthew why would you even put this in here but see it comes to the point where all of a sudden what ends up happening is in verse 26 he, he acknowledges that it's his in verse 26 and Judah acknowledged them and said she has been more righteous than I because I did not give to her Shelah my son and he never knew her again and he's saying she was more righteous than I because I lied to her 
I abandoned her. I was supposed to give her Shelah, my son, but she went out of her way. Yes, she did some messed up stuff in desperation. That doesn't make what she did right. But at the end of the day, she was willing to do what she had to do to bring children into the earth. And therefore, the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to put her into this, into this lineage. Even though it is that messed up, it is that crazy, it is that much desperation. And here's what I really believe by this, is that the pain, the loss, the sin, and the shame that she was subjected to would ultimately be redeemed by the Messiah in her family tree. And Jesus is saying, I believe Matthew and the Holy Spirit is saying, see, this is, this is what you have to understand, that when Jesus, the Son of God, comes, He doesn't come in the midst of perfection. He realized, The reason He comes is because we're broken. The reason He comes is because we are jacked up with all kinds of shame. You all know as well as I do, if I go back and think about some of the things that I have experienced and some of the things I have done, I am riddled with shame in those thoughts. And as I read this, I blush. I, I, there's, there's a shame. I almost thought to myself, I, almost, I literally read this and I almost thought to myself, Lord, I can't preach that on a Sunday morning. And he said, son, it's Scripture. And unless you feel the mess that you're in, you'll never realize what I've done for you all. You'll never realize that I came not to avoid the pain, not to avoid the shame and the sin, but to redeem you out of it. And see, this is precisely the kind of people that Jesus came to save. It's a story of hope because in place of desperate acts and broken hopes, Jesus was coming to bring real hope to a broken and desperate world. This is why Jesus has come. Amen? Let's look at the second woman. If that story wasn't good enough for you, let's look at the next one. Now, Rahab, number two, is, is, it's a story of peace. In Matthew 1.5, it says Salmon, or Salmon or Salmon, whichever you want to say, begot Boaz by Rahab. Now, Rahab is the second woman, and what you have is Tamar by Judah has a couple of children. One of them was named Perez, and Perez has some children. And seven generations down the line, they have some more children. And Salmon comes in with Joshua. And, and what's going on at this time in Israel is that Joshua is taking Israel into the promised land. They're going into a land, but it's, it's, it's filled up with Canaanites and they're having to go to war in order to take their inheritance that God has given them. And when they go in, Joshua actually says, here's what I want you to do, boys. The most wicked city, the greatest stronghold in the promised land is Jericho. So I'm going to send two spies into this land, and he spends, sends two spies in. Now, some scholars say that this guy, Salmon, Salmon, was one of the spies that went into the land in the beginning. He was one of the two. Now, when these two went into Jericho, they went in, and the men of Canaan said, we saw two spies come in from Israel. Where are they at? And they went into, it says literally, a prostitute's house named Rahab. So Tamar poses a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. And Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the city walls of Jericho and these men were trying to take cover so they went into Rahab's house. It turns out that Salmon most likely was one of those who would later on down the line marry that woman who he went into to get shelter from, uh, which you know brings up other thoughts as well. But in Joshua uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 14, let's read Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 14, see what it says here. It says... Once they go into Rahab's house, here's what she says to them. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea 
for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the, of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Now here, they're coming in, and I want you to understand, Israel is afraid of these enemies. But when, she come, when they come in, she says, you know what, the truth is we're actually afraid of you. Now I need you to understand that some of you all, you are afraid of, of circumstances, you're afraid of what the devil may do to you, you're afraid of sickness and disease in the future, and I promise you right now, is that you've got the Holy Spirit of God living on the inside of you, and your fear is nothing in comparison to the fear that the devil has that you will find out who you are in Christ and you will start enforcing the victory of Jesus. Let me tell you something. The enemy is faint-hearted because of you. You realize that. And most of you spend your time faint-hearted because you're afraid of the enemy and the enemy is scared to death that you're going to stand up, get bold and courageous and say, I'm going to step into my promised land and I'm going to take what the enemy has stolen, what is rightfully mine. They're faint-hearted. Amen. That's just a little extra nugget. And it says, And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. The devil's heart is melting, knowing what you're capable of. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my mother, my my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. It's the same way with Jesus. He's come to deal with us on the basis of grace and truth. He's not going to lie to us. He's not going to let things slip. But he deals with us kindly. He deals with us truly. He deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. And she's saying, give me a true token of what's going to go on here. But here's what you've got to understand, that Jericho was the most wicked city, if you read in history, in Canaan. They would offer up, they would have their children, and oftentimes they would offer their firstborn child on the altar of Molech, and they would take a newborn living baby and set it in the, hands, in the hands of this god Molech in a cauldron that was burning and the child would burn alive. And they did that in mass. There was bestiality. There were all kinds of sinful sexual practices in the land. You're talking about a very wicked city and God was bringing judgment upon that city. And as they went in to bring destruction, she is living in the walls of this city. And the walls were built up very strong. What it is a picture of is our unredeemed lives. It's a picture of us living in our brokenness, living in our bondage to sin. And we've got walls built up that will not let God into certain areas of our life because of our sin. And here's what's beautiful though. is she gets to the point where she she says, everything I've known, everything I've lived in, even though I am a representative of what's the worst part of this city, I'm a prostitute, and I'm living in the very walls, everything I know, I believe that your God is the real God. I'm willing to forsake my gods because I've seen what your God can do. And if you will, you can come and tear down my house. You can come and tear down my past. You can take everything that I once was, and you can demolish it because I'm ready to follow your God. That's a picture of our very life. This is the kind of faith that God asked for. He says, yeah, I know you're a sinner. I know you're broken. I know you've done some horrible things. I know you've got some walls built up. But if you will let me come in, I will deal truly and kindly with you and I will tear down every wall that is set up in your life by sin and rebellion and rejection and whatever you've done and I will enter in and I will deal truly and I will deal kindly with you and I will give you new life. See, this is the picture of us in Christ. What I love about it is that you say, 
horrible. And it's just, sometimes things are just so sinful. Some of you got things in your life, and I know, I know people deal with things that shame just overwhelms them, and the sin of their past just overwhelms them. I've talked to people about this, but you know that Romans 5.20 says that where sin did abound... Grace did superabound. It much more abounded. That means that if you've got a stronger wall, God is going to release more grace into that area. If you've got a greater sin, you think God will overflow with more grace in that area. There is no amount of sin, no amount of struggle, no amount of shame that ultimately God's sea of grace in Jesus Christ will not overwhelm it and bring transformation in your life if you allow Him to do it. There's no way that you can get far enough from the love of God, from the grace of God, that He won't come into your life. He will not transform every aspect of where you've been and what you've done. And see, this is, this is our story. And here's what I love. She says, Rahab says, Boys, will you give me a true token? Will you let me know somehow, some way, that when I go out of here, when you guys come in here and you destroy all this, that you're going to save me, you're going to save my family, you're going to save my... Everybody that's with me, she says, give me a true token. Now, the word for token in the Hebrew language, let's look at this. It's actually a lot of places in the Scripture. If you break it down, you can get on Bible Hub and look this up, right? Hebrew word for token is this word right here. and it's Now, Hebrew reads right to left, okay? It doesn't read left to right. It reads right to left. And it's Aleph, Vav, Tav. And Aleph represents an ox or a sacrifice, the valve represents a nail, and the tav represents a cross. In other words, she was saying, give me a true token, and the token was the sign of Jesus' sacrifice nailed when he was nailed on the cross of Calvary. She's saying, how are you going to know that when judgment comes to this place and all the walls are torn down, you're going to be saved? How do they know that you're going to be saved? Because on the cross of Calvary, Jesus was nailed there. On that cross, he was the sacrifice that ultimately brought away all of your judgment, everything that you could ever deserve, all of your guilt, all of your punishment, Jesus absorbed it on the cross. And that's the true token that every, each and every one of us have. You say amen to that. See, G, right now in the lineage, Matthew's trying to point us to something deeper about where he comes from. Now here's something else that's very interesting. You see them coming in, and there's a representative. When we, when we talk about the Christmas story is about the coming of Jesus. Advent is the name they use for it. Advent means coming. And Jesus has two comings. He has his first coming, he has his second coming. Y'all realize that, right? He's coming back. He came one time and he came as a baby. Now when they first came into Canaan, into the promised land, they came discreetly, the same way Jesus did. He came discreetly and he was born in a manger and nobody really knew where, who he was or what he was about. There was a few, just a few shepherds and a few magi that came from a far distance who knew he was. And matter of fact, after that, Herod wanted all the baby boys killed. So what did they do? They took the baby and they hid him. When Jesus came in his first coming, he did not come to conquer the world. He came to conquer yours, your heart. He came to conquer my heart. He came discreetly. But when he comes back the second time, he will come back the same way that Joshua did the second time. And in the Hebrew, Joshua's name is actually Yeshua. It's Jesus. Because the same way Joshua led them in is the same way that Jesus will lead his saints in and he will conquer this world and the kingdoms of men will fall and God will establish his kingdom in Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. That's the second coming that he's going to bring. So you see that right there. In those scriptures. Now, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, notice what it says. It says, So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear. 
unless when we have come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brother and all your father's household to your own home. Now the scarlet cord represents the blood of Jesus and judgment was coming on, on Canaan. Let me tell you something, judgment is going to come on this world folks. And the only way that we're going to experience salvation is if that blood of Jesus, that scarlet cord, is put out front. And here's what I would be doing if I were you. I would be putting that scarlet cord, that blood of Jesus, out front over my family, over my father, over my mother, over my children, over my brothers, my sisters. I'd be putting that scarlet cord out front and praying the blood of Jesus over them and for that protection because it is coming to a time where we're going to be dealing with this stuff. But see, not only, here's the thing. If you looked at Rahab, you would say everything is against Rahab. She's a Canaanite. She's not even a Jew. She's a prostitute. She's marked by God for judgment living where she's at. And not only did she save herself and her family, but she joined the community of faith of Israel, started believing in God, and she was married to this man named Salmon and came into the royal tribe of Judah and became the mother of Boaz. See, her place in Jesus' genealogy is a reminder that in the face of certain judgment, peace with God is available through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a story of peace. And, and, and the Holy Spirit puts her in this lineage for a specific purpose. Let's look at the third one. Y'all still with me? I know this is a lot. I didn't know how any way else to deal with it. I just read this. I thought, boys, we've got to cover these four women. Number three is Ruth. And Ruth is a story of joy. Ruth is a story of joy. Matthew 1.5, it says that Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. So you see that Rahab and Salmon have Boaz, and then Boaz has Obed, who's the grandfather of David, and he has the grandfather of David by Ruth. Now, in contrast to Tamar and Rahab, who were caught up in some sexual sin and different things like that, Ruth is, is, is a lot more brighter. She's a lot more appealing. And here's what it says. If you turn to the book of Ruth, let's read some verses there. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem of Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. So you got three women, and Naomi, her husband Elimelech, dies. Naomi has two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, and, and her two sons, Malon and Chilion, they die. So you've got three women now that are husbandless. And again, in that society, difficult thing to deal with. They, they, don't have, they don't have any children anymore. They have no lineage. They have no line. Some difficult things have happened. Now, this is a very interesting story. I've got, I got to say this because you, you're going to find a lot of different things that point us directly to who we are and to who Jesus is. Now, whenever these, these women were Moabites... Now what you've got to understand first and foremost is that a Moabite was cursed by God. In Deuteronomy, God said that Moab shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. Anybody who's a Moabite does not come into the presence of God. You and I, in our sin, we were Moabites. 
We were under a curse. We were cut off from God. We didn't enter into the presence of God because we were not Jews by line. We, didn't, we weren't a privy to the things of God. We were under a curse. We were cut off from God the same way that she was. And she says, they're Moabite. They're cursed. They're cut off from God. Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, she said, look, y'all have got nothing. You need to stay here in Moab. You need to find you another husband so that you can raise up children. But... Orpah says, she cries, and she says, okay, she stays with her gods. But you know what? Ruth says, Ruth says, you know what? I'm going with you, and no matter what happens, you people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. I am forsaking my old false Moabite gods, and I am coming into your kingdom. I'm following you. Your people are going to be my people, and your God is going to be my God. And so she goes with Naomi. Now here's what's very interesting. Notice this. Malon and Chilion, if you look at it, she was married to Malon, and guess what his name is? You can't make this stuff up. His name in the Hebrew means sickness. If you look at his name in the Hebrew, Malon means weak with sickness and disease, and his brother's name, Chilion, literally means death or destruction or wasting away or dying. In other words, she was married to sickness, disease, and death. It's a picture of you and I. We were under the curse, cut off from God, and we were under the law of sin and death and broken by the sickness of sin in this world. That was us, was it not? And she says, I'm going to go with you, and, and your people are going to be my people, and my God, your God is going to be my God. And they go into this new place, they come into Israel, they come into Bethlehem, and she meets this guy named Boaz. Okay? She meets this guy named Boaz, and Boaz, his name means in him is strength. He was Jewish, he was an eligible bachelor, and he was the most wealthy man in Bethlehem at the time. And see, Ruth is cut off from God, but Boaz is in the family of God. And there was a particular law in those times called the Law of the Kinsman Redeemer. And again, just like they could have done with the lineage and bind, he could, he's allowed to come in when a woman is poor and a widow, and he's allowed to buy her land, buy her stuff, and redeem her, but he has to be willing. He has to be willing. Now the problem is, is that Boaz is willing to redeem her, but there is a closer relative, and this closer relative represents the law of God. And this closer relative comes in and he says, you know what, I would redeem her, but she's a Moabite, and she's under the curse of God, and I don't want to redeem her because I don't want to lower my holy standards. See, the law of God is not going to lower its standards for you. The Bible says that if you break one law of God, you're guilty of them all. It's not going to lower its standards. But see, Jesus, what he does is he says, yeah, I see that you're broken. I see that you're sin, I, in sin. I see that you're under the curse and you're subject to death. But I love you so much that I am coming in to redeem you from sickness, from death, and from the curse. And I am willing to buy you back and to redeem you. And Boaz chooses to buy her back and redeem her. And see, she could not bear fruit anymore because you and I, under the law, trying in our own effort, efforts to produce something for God, we can produce nothing. But when we enter into a real relationship with Jesus Christ, after we've come into his redemption, he begins to produce this fruit in our lives. We begin to see this. And so Ruth has this child. And she has this child named Obed, who is the grandfather of David. And this speaks really, this, there's joy because it speaks about the fact that God came to redeem outsiders. Amen. 
He didn't just come to redeem the perfect people or the people who, who are going to church and doing the right thing all the time. He came to redeem outsiders who others would reject, who others said they weren't allowed to enter in. Jesus says, I'm coming to redeem those outsiders and that redemption, that salvation. When you and I truly know where God brought us from and what he brought us out of and that he chose to save us in our mess, I don't know about you, but that brings me great joy. See, it's a story of joy for Ruth because she experienced redemption and she got the full inheritance of the greatest in the land because she was willing to say, I'm leaving my false gods and I'm going to let your God be my God. That's what it's saying. Number four, the last one, Bathsheba. This is my last one. Bathsheba is a story of love, but probably not in the way that you would sense this. In Matthew 1.6, it says that David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, he doesn't even say her name. He doesn't even say Bathsheba. He says, by her who had been the wife of Uriah. What is he trying to point out? What is Matthew saying by using that phrase? He is trying to emphasize David's sin. He's trying to point out the fact that, yes, prophecy says that the Messiah shall set upon the throne of David, his father, and shall come from the line of David. Prophecy says that. That he'll sit on the throne of David. But see, David is not the righteous one. David is not the good one. The only one that is holy and good and pure is the Messiah himself, Christ Jesus the righteous. And he comes and he sits on the throne of, of his father David, but he comes to redeem his father David. David is not greater. And Matthew is pointing out that all of this, this whole line has been a mess, but it is still bringing about God's ultimate purpose. And God, in the greatest of messes, can bring about his ultimate purpose. And so you know this story because we, we talked about it not long ago. But in this story about Bathsheba, David the king, he's already got wives and children, doesn't he? He's already got wives and children and he becomes king and he's being lazy and on the rooftop he sees Bathsheba bathing. And he sees her naked. He says, hey boys, bring that woman to me. And, they, and he gets her pregnant. Problem is she's got a husband who is David's friend who is currently at war. He brings Uriah, her husband, in, tries to get him drunk and go into his wife so that he could cover it up and he'd think it was his child. Well, Uriah says, I can't go into my wife when my men are in battle. So David sends him back out and sends a letter by him to Joab the captain and says, put him in the hottest battle and retreat from him and let him be killed. So he had, he had Uriah murdered. And he takes Bathsheba in and she's pregnant and they lose the first baby. But he keeps her as his wife. And after all this scandal, after all this sin, after all this murder and lying and all this pain and loss, here's the thing about Bathsheba. I don't think, in my mind, I don't even think she probably wanted to be with David. I think it was an oppressive, authoritative thing. She couldn't turn down the king. She was in a, in, a, in a predicament. She couldn't turn down the king. I don't know. I don't know what it was like. But I doubt very seriously she, she wept bitterly. She was in an oppressive thing. And here's the thing that this points to me to because, because we, we, in our lives, we get in relationships, we get in so many messes, we get in sexual sin, we get in all kinds of messes, and at the end of the day, you know what we're actually pursuing? We're pursuing the love of God in Christ. We just don't know how to find it. And all those broken relationships, see, this is not a story about lust. This is a story about love. It's a story about lust and infidelity and sin and evil desire. But God is saying in the midst of all of our brokenness, all of our sexual sin, all of our lies, all of our deceit, all the chaos that goes on, He is still working His purposes in it. That's what's so crazy about it. 
as Matthew intentionally says, you've got these stories right here and all of this stuff. You see hope, you see peace, you see joy, you see love. And it's establishing Jesus' credentials that he is of the line of David. He does come from Abraham. That he is perfectly, he is, he has, he's heir to the throne, so to speak, according to prophecy. But this throne isn't perfect. It's a throne that comes with all kinds of brokenness, comes with all kinds of sin, comes with all kinds of pain because that's what Jesus is entering into to redeem. Now, let me give you a few takeaways and we'll close this down. But when you read these four stories, and we just gave a, a very broad overview of these stories. But the first takeaway I want you to understand is that if you read these stories, you have to understand that our lives are not always going to go according to plan. Amen. I promise you right now, we've got plans at this church. I guarantee you that it probably ain't going to go according to them. We've got plans in my own life, in my family's life. I've, Andre and I, we've had plans. We, you know, you, you, when you're in your 20s, you're like, well, we've got this thing figured out. We're going to do this this year. We're going to do that that year. And those years pass, and none of it happens. And there's brokenness, and there's pain, and there's a little bit of heartache, and there's things that don't go the way that you wanted them to. In the midst of it, God is revealing himself to you. In the midst of it, you mess up. In the midst of it, you get so angry sometimes that you feel like throwing in a towel and cursing God and whatever. You know what I'm saying? You go through these things. You go through these difficulties. You make terrible decisions. But in the end, God says, here's how good I am. I'll take the worst decisions and bring redemption out of it. Your lives are not going to go according to plan, but I am so good and, I'm, and I love you so much that I will take your bad decisions and actually bring good out of them down your line. That's amazing to think about because oftentimes what we do is we think, man, the mistakes I've made, they've disqualified me. And because of the mistakes I've made, it's not ultimately, I'm, it's, it, it, he's not going to be able to work good into this. And we're seeing that the best thing that has ever come into this world came through a line that was full of nothing but a mess. And Matthew's trying to point that out. He's trying to say the redemption, the salvation that we're receiving is not through perfection, but it is messy. And God is not afraid to enter into your mess. Right now, in your mess, God is Emmanuel. He is God with you. He's God with you in that mess. And secondly, I want you to read this. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. It says, so all the, I, I just think stuff like this is cool. I study the Bible and I look, think stuff like this is cool, so I share it with you when I see it. But, but here's what they would have saw when, when they read this verse. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. 14 generations is what they would have called two sevens. Okay? Two sevens. And then and from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. you got two more sevens. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. you got two more sevens. How many sevens is that? Anybody do the math? It's six sevens. So when Christ comes, what is he? He is the seventh seven. And he's pointing this out on purpose. He's saying that it is the fullness of time. That in the lineage, he is the seventh seven. He is the fact that God created the earth in six days and on the seventh day he's rested. He said, I know you've been looking for rest. You've been trying to labor to atone for your sins. But I'm saying now the atonement for your sins has come. There's one that has come. He is the Savior and he has come to bring you into that rest that was promised. Jesus is the seventh seven. 
He is that rest. And that's why it says at the end of this lineage, you go a few more verses, Matthew 1, 21, and it says, and she will bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It listed his people and he came to save them from all that mess that we just read about. Amen, y'all. This is the good news of Christmas, man, that God sends his son to become a baby, to live a life that we could not live, to die on the cross in our place so that all of our mess he enters into. And we don't have to feel separated from God anymore because God is now with us in Christ. He's not distant. He is right here with us. See, no matter the shame or the guilt that you're facing, Christ is with you in your mess. He's with you in your pain. And these women, lastly, are reminders that Jesus came in the world to save all kinds of people. Men, women, prostitutes, queens, adulterers, adulteresses, immigrants, no matter who, no matter what, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And that's the God that we worship. And I don't know about you, but I am thankful that God is holy and I'm thankful that he's pure and I'm thankful that he wants to make me and holy and he wants to make me pure but the truth is is I don't know about you but I didn't start out holy and pure and I'm still working on that amen but the good news is is that God is not afraid to enter into it with me when I'm still in my struggle and some of you that's where you're at right now you're in that struggle and God wants you to know this morning that I am with you in it I might feel distant that's not the truth I'm with you in the struggle and no matter what mistakes you've made no matter what kind of difficulty you've had no matter the shame that you carry he will work it for your good he will bring it to his ultimate purpose because that's who he is you bow your heads just where you're at just for a moment I just want to give people an opportunity to respond because if that's you and you've dealt with shame, you've dealt with sin of your past, and you just want to be free from that, and you want to say, I'm ready to just, to just give this all over to Jesus and put my trust in him, just like, just like Rahab did, just like when she said, Lord, I'm going to put the scarlet cord out front. I'm going to put faith in the blood of Jesus, and I'm ready for all the walls to be torn down. I'm ready, I'm ready to just have, find that new life. I'm ready to just commit my life to you, Jesus hand this thing over to you. If that's you, I want you to just raise your hand right where you're at so I can pray with you. Just raise your hand right where you're at. Anybody at all? I see a couple. I see a couple. For the rest of you, how many of you, you know you're dealing with just intense struggles and you're just like, God, I need to know that you're with me in this. I need to know that somehow you're going to work this together for good because I'm worried that somehow it's not. I'm worried that the, the hopelessness I feel and the fear that I feel is going to overwhelm me and I just, I doubt sometimes that you're going to work good in this. How many of you would admit to that and raise your hand? Got several more on that. I want us to pray together right now. Father, first and foremost, we pray. Lord, and we, we turn from our sin because, Jesus, you came to save us from that sin. So we give it all to you, God, the shame of our past, our brokenness, every sin that we have ever committed. Lord Jesus, we bring it to you now, and we thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, washes us from every impurity, makes us new and makes us clean. And we confess to you, Lord, now that you are the Lord of our lives. Once again, afresh, we just renew it. Lord, that not only are you our Savior, but you are Lord. And we follow you and we commit our lives to you afresh. 
And Lord, we're grateful that you took on the same flesh and body that we do did because now we know that we've got a faithful high priest who feels what we feel, who's been through what we've been through. And Lord, you came to redeem us from that brokenness. And Lord, right now I'm asking for a supernatural grace to be released for the people that are going through trial and struggle and shame, maybe pain or whatever it is, that they feel like, man, I'm not going to get through this. Right now, God, release a grace that says, even in the difficulty, even in the challenge, I'm going to work that for your good. I have a purpose, I believe. The Lord says that He has a purpose that is greater than what you can imagine right now. And if you will trust Him, He is going to work that into your life. And so, Lord, we thank you that you take the brokenness, you take the mess, you take the chaos, you redeem it, and you work it for your good, you work it for your purpose. We ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. I want you to stand to your feet with me. We're going to worship the Lord together. And I tell you, there, there's something about it, especially for those of y'all, this, is this message has spoken to you, and you know what I'm talking about?